This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes and via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's 2022 race for governor was the most expensive in state history, with over $165 million being poured into the race. The Associated Press reports the election topped the previous high in 2018 when a combined $93 million was spent between the two candidates, and that was double the amount that was spent in the 2014 governor's race. Special interest groups spent around $88 million last year in support of incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers, who himself spent nearly $42 million to win re-election. His Republican opponent, Tim Michaels, spent around $28.5 million in the election, with special interest groups spending almost $76 million on his behalf. Criminal justice advocacy groups have filed a lawsuit against Republican lawmakers today, looking to block two questions from appearing on the ballot in April, the Associated Press reports. One of those questions is for a constitutional amendment that would alter how judges consider setting bail for violent offenders. The other is an advisory referendum that asks voters if they believe able-bodied, childless welfare recipients should be required to look for work, which is currently required in state law. Today's lawsuit was filed by two groups, Wisdom is a faith-based organization, and Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO, advocates for formerly incarcerated folks. These plaintiffs argued the legislature submitted the required paperwork to get the question on the ballot one day late, and thus should not appear on the April 4th ballot. The lawsuit was filed in Dane County Court earlier today. Well, the city of Madison has been laying off road salt after last week in snow. UW-Madison is being criticized for oversalting their roads and bike paths. The city decided not to salt its roads after the storm because, in part, the weather was too cold for it to melt the ice effectively. The city also announced earlier this winter that it would fine residents for oversalting their sidewalks in an attempt to keep that salt from washing into Madison's lakes. But when Hillary Dugan, a professor of limnology at UW-Madison, biked around campus, they found more salt than was needed with large piles of salt all along the university's roads and walking paths. UW-Madison told the Wisconsin State Journal that it needs to use salt to keep roads and sidewalks safe, and that staff are trained to use the minimum amount when applying it. Summer school teachers at Madison schools will make $40 an hour next summer, reports the Capital Times. That comes after hundreds of students were unenrolled from summer classes last year due to a shortage of teachers. The Madison School Board voted on the pay increase last night on a 6-1 to vote. And now on to today's top stories. With the 2023 spring primary election just around the corner, the three candidates appearing on the ballot for Madison mayor met in a debate last night, tackling key issues the city is expected to face in coming years. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The three candidates appearing on the ballot in the February primary election for Madison mayor met for the first time last night for a debate hosted by multiple Westside Neighborhood Associations at Sequoia Library. The candidates took on a multitude of issues facing the city, from housing and zoning ordinances to transportation to public safety. 
Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, the incumbent in the race, has served as Madison's mayor since 2019 and previously sat on the city council from 2007 until 2013. Gloria Reyes is a former police officer and sat as both Madison school board president and deputy mayor under former mayor Paul Soglin. Scott Kerr is a longtime employee with the city of Madison in the traffic engineering division. Housing was one of the top issues discussed at last night's debate as the city contends with the ongoing housing crisis and the changing character of neighborhoods across the city. One of the first questions regarded a proposed change to city zoning ordinances that allows for more unrelated renters to live in a home that is currently zoned for single families. The change has seen heated debate by some neighborhood residents who are worried that it will invite loud college students into a neighborhood, reports the Capital Times. The change would not allow for single-family homes to be demolished throughout the city, but would allow more unrelated individuals to live in that home. Rhodes-Conway says that there has been misinformation about the nature of the change and that it is not intended as a way to allow droves of college students into quiet neighborhoods. She says that it is necessary to combat the rising housing costs throughout the city. But Reyes fired back at the incumbent mayor, saying that the change would cause chaos in small neighborhoods across the city. The funny thing is it's not going to really impact the family market. It's going to destroy it. You know, we need to think about moving black and brown people into home ownership is what we should be doing. We shouldn't be changing our neighborhoods. Kerr says that he agrees with Rhodes-Conway and that the world is changing and our neighborhoods need to change along with it. And I can see where single-family homeowners are afraid of having a flop house next door to them where there's a bunch of students turning it into basically animal house. But I don't think we're going to see that. The next topic of discussion was transportation, specifically bus rapid transit. Reyes began by saying that while she is overall supportive of BRT, she is concerned that the routes chosen by the city will cause some riders to have to walk further to get to their bus stop. She says that an equity report outlining how the change in bus routes would affect people of color should have been the city's first task. Rhodes-Conway, who made improving public transportation a key part of her campaign in 2019, defended herself, saying that the network redesign, which goes into effect later this summer, was made specifically to address the length of time people of color already spend on the bus. And what we found was that people of color and low-income people are actually had much longer commutes on our bus system and were forced to transfer between routes much more frequently than white people. Kerr, who works for the city's traffic engineering division, says that he too has several issues with BRT, saying that he thinks the plan was not well thought out. It's undoing things that we put in place for Vision Zero type implementation, where we have infrastructure to protect pedestrians that now we have to remove so that the bus can run through those areas. We're going to be stripping parking off where the bus runs through, which means if you have a business in the middle of the block, you no longer have a way to get deliveries or to have your customers stop and, and come in. Finally, the candidates took on the subject of public safety. Kerr says that he wants to see more police on the streets and expand the budget for the police department. Kerr also says he fully supports body-worn cameras for police officers, pointing to the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. In that event, the officers who beat Nichols to death were fired and charged with second-degree murder after the body camera footage was released to the public, reports NPR. When asked if crime was out of control in Madison, Mayor Rose Conway says that no, it is not, and the rates of crimes like auto thefts and gun violence are on the decline. 
And I'm really proud of the work that our police department has done. Under Chief Barnes's leadership, they have taken a very strategic and targeted approach to the crimes that our community has said are the top priority, and that's gun violence, traffic crashes, and stolen cars. And in all of those cases, we are seeing things trend in the right direction. But Reyes disagrees that crime is trending in the right direction, saying that when she was on the police force, there were around four homicides a year. Now, Madison is trending 10 homicides a year. We're losing young black kids to violence, and it's an equity issue. And so we need to wrap ourselves around young people, working with our schools, our most vulnerable youth in this city, to wrap ourselves around them so that we don't lose them. There was an increase of homicides during the pandemic, going from four homicides in 2019 to 10 in 2020. There were eight homicides in Madison in 2022. Other crimes have seen a drop-off in recent months. Between June and October of 2022, the city saw a 21% drop in shots fired calls and a 5% drop in stolen vehicles compared to the same period in 2021, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The spring primary election will take place on February 21st, and the 2023 spring general election takes place on April 4th. Last night's debate was just the first meeting of the three candidates. There will be another debate tonight at 6.30, held at the Urban League of Greater Madison on Park Street. In other news, there is one other candidate who is running to become Madison's next mayor. The Capital Times reports Daniel Howell announced earlier this month that he will be running as a writing candidate. Howell says that he missed the deadline to file nomination forms to get on the ballot because of his winter graduation from UW-Madison. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. In 2021, the UW Population Health Institute gave Wisconsin a C on its annual health report card, ranking the state's overall health outcomes and disparities related to factors like lifespan and quality of life. Now, a council dedicated to reducing health disparities issued its recommendations for improvement. WRT reporter Abigail Levins has the story. Recent Dane County Health Report found that the gap between the life expectancy of black and white women has grown in the past several years. And racial disparities in infant mortality rates, low birth weight, and quality of life continue to exist in Dane County. Things like birth bonds, guaranteed income, and a maternal mortality review process could help bump up Wisconsin's health grade on its next three-year report card. That's after the Wisconsin Governor's Health Equity Council released its full report yesterday. The report details the state of health equity in Wisconsin and includes more than a dozen recommendations for change. Governor Evers created the Health Equity Council in 2019, asking dozens of top health leaders to make a plan to improve health care and decrease systemic health disparities. The council had 34 members who met over 20 months to develop the 20 recommendations included in the report. They all include actionable steps that lawmakers in the community can take action. Gina Green-Harris is director of the Center for Community Engagement and Health Partnerships at UW-Madison. She chaired the council. When we uh, developed these recommendations and this report, it was based on the need for all to understand in Wisconsin the current state of health equity and health inequities. The report also includes statistics about disparities in Wisconsin. For example, black people were incarcerated at 10.9 times the rate of white people in 2017. And more than 70% of white people own their home as compared to 27% of black people. Green Harris says the council wanted to get to the root of these issues. The report emphasizes how disparities in health care are connected to other economic and social factors, 
like education, justice, and housing. Or lack of access to health care. What does that do? We know that further exasperates poor health, but that's not the answer. The answer is let's look at some of our uh, access to health care agencies, or let's look even beyond that. Why are they happening? What's really symptomatic about it? What policies are interrupting that? One council recommendation is to offer tax credits to employers of formerly incarcerated people to better support them in reentry. Dr. Michelle Robinson, the vice chairperson of the council, says economic development is at the root of many of their recommendations. If you are unable to get access health care because you can't get a job or if you are unable to access health care because you don't earn enough to pay for healthcare through the open market, that means that's that's a basic sort of essential requirement that you need in order to just have your basic health needs met is is inaccessible to you. Other council recommendations include expanding healthcare services to immigrants, tuition waivers for members of Wisconsin tribal nations, and establishing a council for transgender health and safety. Ultimately, the council has no control over whether these recommendations lead to change. They hope that advocacy groups will use the report to advocate for policy change to legislators. Dr. Robinson wants people to read the report and consider these recommendations. She says that what comes next is dialogue. It represents the will and the interest and the needs of the people. And at the end of the day, it's going to take the people to be able to move any of those um, ideas further. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. The 2023 primary election is less than one month away. This year, there are five candidates running to represent District 12 on the city's north and east sides. One of those candidates is Blake Alvarenga, who sat down with WRT producer Nate Nate Weggehout last week to talk about his vision for the city. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 12 on the east side of Madison, containing the Dane County Airport down to the Yahara River at Burr Jones Park off of East Johnson. One of the five candidates running in that primary election is Blake Alvarenga, who joins me now by phone. Blake, thank you so much for talking talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So just to begin here, Blake, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? My name is Blake Alvarenga. Uh, I was born in Madison at St. Mary's, 31 years old. I'm currently working in project management as a consultant at MGE. I'm also uh, very active in the community organizing scene. Uh, you might have seen me down at the Bigger Than Row uh, events walking down State Street and at the Capitol. I'm also really involved with firearm safety. Uh, I teach free classes. You might have seen me at the farmer's market giving away locks. There's kind of this void between like absence-only education and deregulation that I'm trying to fill. So there's not too many people working in that space. And so I'm really trying to reach as many people as possible uh, to do harm reduction. You know, if we can't convince people not to buy firearms, well, can we convince them to lock them up? Can we convince them to secure them? Can we do all that we can to get our best health outcomes and best community outcomes? And now why are you running for Alder of District 12? Because uh, I really care. When I found out we were unrepresented, um, it really motivated me to find out more about what was going on in my district. So I recently moved down the Isthmus. I was living in Tenny Lapham for about five years. Now I'm living in Emerson East neighborhood. I really love it on this side of the Yahara as well. And I just really care about everything that's going on, whether it's development 
at the Oscar Meyer site or what's going on with the environment by the airport, Hartmeyer, the Filene building, all of that's very important to me. And I want to be an advocate for the people in my neighborhood in Madison. Sticking with you for just a little while longer, Blake, what do you do in your spare time? Community activism, again, it's practically a full-time job, uh, giving people gun locks and working with other organizations, whether it's protesting for the environment or community action, fills up pretty much all my free time. Now let's take an eye over at the city itself. What are some of the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address on a term on the council? Well, first of all, is housing, right? We need to do our very best to build as much affordable housing as fast as possible. Now, that said, we always have to consider the environment. If, if we're going to build, we should be making Madison greener, right? We should be looking to upgrade spaces, right? Disuse spaces. We should be looking to do the very best we can, not only to ablate the housing crisis, but improve our soil, improve our air, improve our water. And now let's take a dive into some specific issues here in Madison. And you mentioned housing, so let's start there. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing to the city? Well, first of all, I think it's working with developers. Uh, We have a lot of tools that we can do to give developers options when it comes to building housing. I spoke recently at the most latest city council meeting as a citizen on the transit overlay. By doing things like that, we can help improve our housing market availability. This isn't necessarily about duplexes or ADUs. This is about, you know, where we have eight apartments, let's get 12 apartments, right? With greater density, it leads to higher property value. That property value leads to taxes. And that density also improves our public transit as we're able to have better offerings. Another big issue facing Madison right now is transit. Now, bus rapid transit set to go into effect pretty soon here. How, how do you feel about bus rapid transit? We need more of it. Um, I'm very happy to hear that Sun Prairie is signed on to be part of BRT. And I look forward to seeing the north and south sides of Madison see BRT in the near future. And now the final issue that I want to sort of take an eye on, a little bit more handled at the county level, but certainly has a lot of implications for Madison as a whole and especially District 12 there, and that's the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to be touching down in Madison uh, later this spring. How do you feel about the F-35 jets? They are something that we as a city need to understand, right? F-35s, they bring the possibility of pollution. They definitely bring air traffic and sound. And we need to do everything we can to support the people that live under their effect, right? It's not the city of Madison's choice whether we have F-35s or not, but it is our choice if we decide to help the people affected. We need to make sure our water stays clean. We need to make sure the people affected by any additional noise are assisted. And we need to make sure that anyone in the area of the airport um, still as, you know, equity, right? Whether that's we're making sure any unintended side effects of the 35s arriving, you know, we as a city make sure we don't leave, you know, that part of Madison out to dry. And now we've touched on some city-specific issues here, but let's turn our eyes uh, on to District 12. What sort of specific issues do you have in your district? What have you heard from potential constituents? Yeah, so I've knocked on quite a few doors at this point here closing in at the end of January. Some of the things people want to see is, you know, additional equity. They want to see improvements 
to the school, which is something that's handled by the school board, but something we always have to keep in mind because there are things that go into that, like transit to the school, the neighborhoods around the school, resource officers, uh, which I oppose. There are things like body cams. There's the Northside pilot. I know Charles Miazzi with District 18 has been a huge champion of that. People want that accountability. Another thing is the tiny homes. People want to see those succeed. Now, Blake, sometimes issues get complicated in the city council there. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen, and you have other constituents who want to see the exact opposite happen. How would you handle that sort of situation? Well, you you have to weigh the comments, right? The city of Madison does a really good job at starting every meeting about talking about who does this policy affect? Who does this policy benefit? And that has to be applied across the board. And one of the best things we can do as you know, leaders in the community is go to the neighborhood association meetings. And I've, I've been to these meetings this past month, and people are split down the room. And you have to kind of find either a compromise or the best case scenario. And I understand that not every vote's going to please everyone in District 12, but I'm always going to vote for Madison and the best possible outcomes um, for my education. Now, wrapping up here, Blake, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? Yeah, so I want to be extremely transparent as an alder and as a local leader. I hope people know that they can always reach out to me. I've got a website set up since I'm not on the city website yet. Well, I will if I'm elected, but BlakeForMadison.com. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about any policies or if you want me to learn something. I, I went down to the Madison Library. I asked the reference librarian. Give me everything you have on city planning. Give me you have everything on being a good local leader. Give me everything you have on being a good politician. And I study every day. And if people want to weigh in and tell me that I should read something or look into something or know about an issue, I hope they know they can reach out to me. I want to be that advocate for District 12. I've been talking with Blake Alvarenga, one of the five candidates running in the spring primary for the Alder seat in District 12. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Blake, thank you so much again for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso talks with Jasper Bernstein about the university's push for more indigenous-focused curriculum. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. I'm joined today by associate news writer Jasper Bernstein to discuss a new opportunity for Indigenous education efforts. Thank you so much for coming today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the article. Can you explain what your story is about and why you were drawn to write about it? 
Yeah, um, so the National Endowment for the Humanities just um, gave a sizable grant for some research around um, indigenous land dispossession in Madison and um, kind of the just accompanying processes around that dispossession. So now it's, they're really trying to develop and research and bring in these um, indigenous uh, speakers just to learn more about what they can do to help educate and they're going to create curriculums. And I just thought that was really a really important subject, of course, because I know um, right now some of the um, some of the talk around this indigenous land dispossession is viewed as performative by many. It's viewed, um, it's viewed in a way that's just there. And I think this group is really, really trying to change how the um, how the talk is around indigenous land dispossession. What is the National Endowment for the Humanities, and why is its funding important? Yeah, so the National Endowment for the Humanities is just a really, really large organization that contributes a lot of money toward um, causes that it deems important, um, I guess mostly around the humanities. Um, and this one, they had a subset, they had a group, I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they had a, um, a small amount of funding that they would give for these public universities to investigate where the land came from. Um, and this, this, um, this group that at UW is really, really looking to figure out um, exactly how the land was taken away because there were some treaties um, and now this land is just being used for public universities all across all across Wisconsin all across the country and UW-Madison specifically um, and yeah that's really what the National Endowment for the Humanities has they have a giant website they have hundreds of causes each month that they donate to and this is just one of the many when you talked with a team of directors what did they emphasize were some of the project's goals um, yeah, so first I would definitely like to shout out the group of professors, uh, Professor Goldstein, Mason, uh, Drushke, and Smith, and, um, and they really, and Keeler, Professor Keeler in specific, um, they really made it a main point of emphasis to, um, to focus on what they were, how they were involving the indigenous community. They, they really made sure to emphasize that this was a very, a, a big first step, but not anything close to what needed to be done. Um, in response to this cause, and they really just emphasized how much um, how much of this funding is really going to help them continue this effort. They said because they're professors, they have to do this full time job of teaching and managing classes. But this funding is really going to allow them to do it over the summer to hire um, graduate students to help them figure out and create educational materials around this cause. You mentioned the Moral Act in your article. Can you explain what that is and how it relates to this program? Yeah, um, so I think I, that act, it was a really significant step. It was authorized by the U.S. government um, and it was, it, it really involved um, taking this land through treaties, through other sources from the indigenous people all across the country, um, and specifically in Madison, I guess, and using that land to create and fund public universities. So a lot of the universities around the country, um, UW-Madison, I guess in specific, but they a lot of them have this land acknowledgement that's been pushed into the forefront lately. Um, and I think just Madison is, um, is one of the many universities that benefited from this act. But there's also the other story in that of the um, indigenous people and how that land was taken from them. How did the project directors describe what the program will look like once it's materialized? Um, 
Yeah, they were really just talking about um, about how they could create standalone one-day lessons um, and buildable lessons and just a wide variety of these academic programs. That's a lot of what they were talking about, but they also really wanted to bring on a lot of um, a lot of native people and help um, educate these non-native communities. Um, and they really, really, one of their big focuses is down the line. Ten, I asked them, what, what is your main goal 10 years down the line? And their response was that they really, really wanted to bring these materials to other universities. They're not charging for these materials. They're not giving them specifically to just UW-Madison. They want all UW, the entire UW system. They want, um, they want everybody around the country that has benefited from this act to really um, take the their resources and modify it and add it to their own curriculums just to do this hard work to repair the relationships around um, around this act and what happened. How does this new program fit within or further other efforts initiated by UW Madison to reckon with indigenous land dispossession? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I was talking a little bit earlier about how some people see um, the work done by UW-Madison right now is pretty performative. Um, I know there's a land-grant acknowledgement at the beginning of a lot of major events for Madison, um, and I know that they've been making an effort to translate a lot of the UW-Madison resources into these indigenous languages. Um, and there's, there's definitely a lot of effort being taken right now by the UW system and UW-Madison in specific just to sort of reconcile with this history. But I think what this group is seeing is that there's just this attitude that a lot of this is performative, that it really doesn't matter at this current time. Um, I mean, we're, we're, two, we're 200 years out from, almost 200 years out from this act. Like a lot of this is very much in the past, but a lot of the effects can be felt today in the communities, in the native communities that had this land taken away from them and that were displaced. So I think this group is really, really trying to, and struggling with the fact that a lot of the community doesn't care or a lot of the community sees the work being done in a negative light. And I think this group's really doing the work and putting in the work to change that. Um, and they just really wanna help get this effort started and work alongside the native communities to get this going. Outreach to surrounding tribes was also emphasized. What is the importance of including Wisconsin Native nations in this effort? Yeah, so one of the main goals of the funding is um, is really just making sure that the natives that they bring in to talk about their history are compensated for their time, um, which is something I don't think was as possible in the past. I mean, this group has been around since I think 2019, if I'm not wrong, um, and they um, and they're really just making this effort to compensate the native speakers they're going to bring them in have them talk about their experiences and then hopefully they're they're making an effort to go out um, and go join the natives and just go and join the indigenous people and talk to them and just help help them share their stories and what they went through and what their families went through and start to repair their relationships and educate the community how do you see the goals mentioned, like co-governance or even restored land, playing out in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of um, they had a lot of initiatives that they support. They supported the Native Nations Initiative, the Our Shared Future Initiative, the American Indian Studies Program, um, and they really they really emphasized that their goal in this program, that one of their main goals, is uh, free tuition for Native students, and that's something that I think has been definitely missing. I, um, I mean, this land was taken from Indigenous communities, and they can't even and, and they have to pay to go attend classes on it. Um, so that's really that's really one of their main goals and one of the things that they're advocating for through this program. Is there anything new you learned while reporting this story that surprised you? Yeah, I think I think most of the story is was pretty new to me and speaking with this group, speaking with the professors and just trying to grasp with the work that they said is a very small step, but to me, um, as someone pretty inexperienced with this subject, this is a this is a big thing. I mean, this is this is a huge effort. They're receiving a ton of grant money from the National Endowment, and I, I think I learned a lot. I mean, about the educational resources that they want to create. I didn't even know that um, that free tuition for Native students was even a main a goal of anybody. But it seems to be a pretty big effort. Um, and I think just these the series of lectures that they're going to be able to create is going to be really important and the work that I've seen and observed behind the scenes has been pretty significant towards creating that. Anything else you think readers should know about this topic? Yeah, I, I think I asked that same question to the professors and they were they were really, really um, really adamant in mentioning that this is this is a small step. I, I've said that a lot. They said that this is a small step. They want to. They really want to acknowledge the um, the emotional labor and what is what has gone into this from the native communities, from their native colleagues, and the American Indian community members. They they really want to acknowledge all of that. And honestly, they they're calling on these indigenous members to really help to share their stories, and that that's a big thing. Um, their families had been through a lot because of this act, because of the dispossession, um, and they, they, it's, I think it's really an important thing to just emphasize that the Native members are should and should be compensated, but should be at the, also be at the forefront of this education movement, and we should just be doing our best to make sure that they have the platform to be able to share their stories. Thank you so much, Jasper. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was, this was really good. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg hits the woods to explore the different ways that owls avoid being seen. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk about owls and their adaptations, but also kind of talk a little bit more about how they blend in, because we had the coolest release in the last couple of weeks here with a little eastern screech owl, which are one of the smallest diminutive owls here in the state of Wisconsin that we work with very regularly at the Wildlife Center. So eastern screech owls are birds that are in different 
types of plumage patterns and morphological colors. So we have the gray screech owl, we have the red morph screech owl, and we also have one that's called like a brown morph, which is an intermix between gray and red. And we just so happened to have this little screech owl that was admitted um, after it had been found down on the ground. Uh, it had actually been hit by a vehicle and it was over on kind of the northeast side of the Madison area and it was observed hit by car. So the poor thing had been on the side of the road really small and it had sustained some ocular trauma and we rehabilitated it over the course of a full month and we were able to release it. Now on the release day, we had a number of folks that joined us from the community as part of our director's council at the Humane Society and they uh, got to see this owl fly off into to the woods really close by to where he was originally found, hopefully within his territory. But someone had commented on how well he blended into the natural environment. And I was like, yeah, you're, I mean, yes, you're right. And when you think of owls, we think, you know, how many times do you really see an owl like in your backyard? Or do you see an owl just hanging around? Not very often, right? I mean, you might hear them hooting and making their noises, especially in the upcoming breeding season here, which is like right now. But a lot of times we hear the owls, but we don't necessarily see them. And what we're hearing is their hoots. So we're not necessarily hearing anything else, right? Well, they have a lot of different cool adaptations to make them be super cryptic and hard to find. And that's on purpose because they're very stealthy hunters. They're predators here eating things like small mice or voles, especially, although great horned owls, one of the, you know, more advantageous owls will eat a lot of other things, including snakes and skunks, believe it or not. But if we're talking about a little eastern screech owl, they might be eating tiny little mice or even earthworms and things, which is pretty neat in itself. But they are very small. They've got a mottled coloration to their feathers, right? So it's going to be a mixture of like that gray, but also with a lot of white spotting. So dark gray shades, light gray shades, and then uh, occasionally brown. And brown and either red can really mix into some nice fall colors. So if you're looking around in a tree, if you've got a tree with bark that's very lumpy or has um, a lot of texture to it, and sometimes even trees with a lot of color in it, meaning like different types of browns and whites and, you know, think of a birch tree having white and black, although that's a pretty easy one, I think, to see the contrast of an owl sitting in it. The uh, trees that have more of the brownish vegetation and brownish bark would be great camouflage for something like an eastern screech owl. And they really enjoy some of the larger, uh, harder, you know, think of the oak trees, uh, deciduous and coniferous trees. So a lot of times it might be in some of the, you know, larger pines. But a lot of our small owl species are cavity nesters. And so they're going to be finding small holes in the trees, uh, sometimes already made by woodpeckers, like apileated, or would find a natural cavity to live in and to nest in. And if they're just going to poke their little heads out and that's all you see, all you're going to see is some brown and white modeling. And they actually, during the day, tend to keep their eyes closed because either they're snoozing and taking a nap or they don't want anyone to see those beautiful eyes. And, you know, depending on the color, it can be really, really bright. So I think of something like a great gray owl who's like all gray and just gorgeous, but bright, bright yellow eyes. If you were to see that bird up close, you would notice the eyes. And that could beeline something else like a predator into a bird like that. And so for a little screech owl, they're pretty small and they don't have that bright of eyes, but it's something to consider because even the shiny reflection of the eyes could be something that another predator could see if they 
watched that bird from the right angle. So a lot of times we'll see owls just kind of sitting very quietly, very still, because it's kind of like playing dead if you're a possum, because you don't want to alert anything to your attention. They'll sit with their ear tufts up and their little ear tufts. Yes, screech owls have ear tufts, just like great horned owls. They have little horns on the top of their heads that are actually just feathers. And those are actually helpful in camouflage and disguise because they look like little, you know, branches or leaves that are coming up off the top of their heads. And so if you think it's a small twig or a leaf blowing in the wind, it looks really similar to the vegetation that you're sitting in. And so I think screech owls sitting there with their eyes closed, not moving, ears up, and in a tree hollow or alongside a tree in a branch, you're not going to see that bird. So you might hear it at night, but you're not going to see it probably during the day unless it flies off or if it moves. So I think it's really amazing how that type of adaptation has really helped owls just to be very extra stealthy and to survive in areas where a tiny little screech owl is only like six inches high. So how do you compete with all the other owls like a giant great horned or a barred owl? Well, you do it by staying quiet and you try to be not noticed. And other owl species in Wisconsin do similar things like our short-eared and long-eared owls. They also like to kind of hide and are very, very cryptic. But I would say a majority of your owls, not the giant, big, charismatic ones, but most of them are going to try to stay hidden. Another really cool adaptation I just thought I would mention um, is also that these birds have the most silent flight. It is just incredible to hear the flapping and the difference when we have birds in rehabilitation that have had, you know, some sort of damage to a wing or to feathers. You can actually visibly uh, see some asymmetry in the feathers if there's some missing or broken, but you can also hear it when they're flapping. When you hear an owl that has no wing injuries or no feather damage, it's actually the opposite. You can hear almost nothing. And that is probably the most amazing adaptation from owls because they can hunt their prey that way by listening with their big ears on their sides of their heads and then by silently fluttering down without making a sound and catching and striking their prey. So they camouflage, they can hear really well. They uh, definitely have the ability to have silent flight. Uh, they are just amazing predators and really cool birds here in the state of Wisconsin. And I feel lucky that we were able to rehabilitate this one Eastern screech owl, but we also get hundreds of raptors every year to our center. And so it's not the only one, but it is a really cool one that I thought was very fun to share. So thanks for listening here on our weekly segment on WORT. If you have any questions about any animals that you see, sick, injured, or orphaned, give us a call at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Dane County Housing Advisory Committee is looking for help to create and preserve affordable and workforce housing, and they need your help. Dane County residents are asked to complete a short survey so the group can accurately assess the current housing crisis. Last week on the 8 o'clock buzz, host Tony Castaneda spoke with Olivia Perry, who works with the County Planning and Development Department about this survey. This is just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find online at wortfm.org. What is this housing survey all about? So the housing survey is one way that the uh, Housing Advisory Committee, who is overseeing the regional housing strategy, a year-long strategic planning process to expedite the development and preservation of affordable and workforce housing, um, it's one way for them to capture broader input and feedback from 
residents from around the county, everywhere from the cities, towns, and villages. We want to get a broad perspective and, and insights from residents. So, you know, older, younger, homeowners, renters, yeah, everyone is as much, uh, as many as possible so we can really have a robust response. And then that information will be shared with the Housing Advisory Committee and be used when it comes time for them to do their visioning for housing for the next 10 to 20 years and in developing their recommendations. Right. Now, you did mention uh, that it that is a problem. What is the problem as the county sees it? Well, the, the problem is that we have an affordable housing crisis. We were just meeting last night, and, you know, one statistic was that a single family, I mean, a, a, a one-bedroom apartment is $300 more a month now than it was you know, 10 years ago. The rates of cost of housing are going up twice as fast, more than twice as fast as incomes are. So a new housing, the, the, new, the construction of new housing is, is really through the roof. And so we just, you know, unless we start to think about, you know, sort of this next generation of housing, we're really basically growth in the county is, is going to continue to slow mm-hmm. and causing, you know, the supply to shrink um, and to put even further pressure on the prices. What we have is an incredibly, incredibly successful private sector. We're growing jobs faster than any other you know, county in the state. Mm-hmm. And we haven't been keeping up with supply for the last decade. In the most recent housing needs assessments put out by Paulson, stated that we had underbuilt already 11,000 units in a decade. And right, so... So we're we're really behind the ball, not just in affordable workforce housing, but in housing across, you know, just the general supply of housing. And it particularly hurts the low to moderate income individuals who are, you know, trying to stay in their housing or living in housing that they can't afford. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a multi pronged crisis. And it definitely hurts our private sector because they can't attract and retain the people that they need. And it also hurts our public safety because they can't, people who are working on our fire, you know, our fire and police and, and the teachers and right, can't find a, a housing that they can afford. And so then they're going to be forced to live in other areas or other counties, which makes them less you know, which makes our public safety less stable because we're having, you know, public safety having to live away from where they work. Uh, Can you talk about the survey itself? And uh, there is a deadline, though, for people to complete this survey. Can you talk about uh, some of the questions on the survey? Sure. Let me just tell you, um, if you want to fill out the survey, go to danecountyplanning.com forward slash RHS. I'll say that again. DaneCountyPlanning.com forward slash RHS. And it's called the Community Housing Survey. We have it in English, Spanish, and Hmong. And you can also download it at that web link. Um, the survey, it takes about 10 to, 7 to 10 minutes. If you do the survey, you are entered into a, a raffle for a $25 gift card. And it closes on February 9th. 
The survey will ask residents if they live here um, in the in the county what their zip code is. It is an anonymous survey. You don't have to put your name. They ask questions like, "Why do you live here? How long have you lived here?" Uh, no, do they ask? They don't ask how long. Um, what your income is. Um, what your how, what your desired housing type is, what your current what your current housing type is, because they want to know the difference of you know whether or not people are living where they want to be living. Um, they also talk about you know ask you about what your housing the housing conditions are like, and when the, when they ask about the housing type that you like, it's literally everything from you know do you want to live in a a housing cooperative? Do you want to live in, you know, senior housing? Do you need disabled housing? Um, and then they also talk about, uh, ask what your current uh, housing um, expenses are, mm-hmm. and then your current transportation expenses. As we know, transportation adds a lot onto housing. So if you live far away or don't have a car, so they want to account for that as well. I've been speaking with Olivia Perry. She's with the uh, Dane County Planning Department, and she wants you, and Dane County actually wants you to take part in the Dane County Housing Survey. And you can go to danecountyplanning.com slash RHS and fill out that survey. And it uh, doesn't take that long. It took about seven, seven minutes minutes for me to fill it out. And Olivia, thank you very much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Abigail Levins. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Tony Castaneda with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Madeline Afonso and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.